0: Hey guys, just a heads up, our listener story today has some graphic depictions of suicidal ideation. So if you're sensitive to that, maybe catch us next week. Thanks. Hi, and thank you for downloading that B Word podcast. I'm your beautiful bipolar host, Becky, and today is our very first um, listener story. It's a long one, so I'll be doing that as opposed to doing any um, interviews today. So I just took my dogs outside. I just sat down to record, and of course, as soon as I press record, my dogs start barking to go outside. So I go and let them outside, and it's a beautiful day, so... Um, they wanted to just kind of, they wanted to hang out and lay down and not, you know, do their business and come back inside so I can record. But it was nice enough that it was a, it was nice enough out that I didn't mind too much. Otherwise, everything's going really well, actually. Um, I've been feeling pretty stable, which is great. And I've decided to take this opportunity while I'm doing well and stable to focus on positivity as much as I can. I suppose that's a good idea, no matter what sort of mental state you're in. But I think that um, if I, by focusing on it when I am feeling um, well and up to it, that it will hopefully become more of second nature So that when I'm not doing as well, I will have that to fall back on. So I've been concentrating on that. And I've also been attending these um, peer-led, oh, what's the word? Support groups. There we go. Some peer-led support groups. And they're doing really well. I go on dbsa.com and I do them online there. And they can sometimes be really helpful, sometimes you know, like any support group, they're not incredibly helpful, but it's nice to kind of just go in and get some support from people who know kind of what it's like and where you're coming from and It's nice that it's online because d b s a doesn't have any actual chapters near me that I can physically go to, but their online um uh, works really well it's a dbsalliance.org, I believe, and you can sign up through there. Well, for news and reviews today, I thought that I would tackle a somewhat controversial subject. That's ECT or uh, electroshock therapy. This came up because um, when I was looking for news articles this week, I came upon a news article that referenced a bill that's currently um, up for debate in Pennsylvania, I think Eastern Pennsylvania, Philadelphia area, that would ban the use of ECT on children under 17, I believe it is. The lawmaker to introduce the bill um, in Pennsylvania It looks like uh, Stephen King- Kinsey, sorry, Stephen Kinsey representative, uh, characterized the use of electroshock therapy on children as, quote, cruel and unacceptable, and that the side effects of ECT can be debilitating even for adults. That's a quote from their press release dated September 27, 2017. And I know that even for adults, ECT is sort of a Controversial topic, although it is allowed and even rec- recommended in some instances. I believe by all the professional organizations, the Med- American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Nurses Psychiatric Nurses Association, and from what I've been reading, um. I've done a little bit of research, very, very little bit of research on this over the past day or so, that the results are generally favorable, at least in alleviating the symptoms for which they were receiving the treatment. Now, there is another article that I found that talked about the... Cognitive effects of electroconvulsive therapy, and that's actually um, an abstract from an article in neuropsycho Ooh, that's a big one. Neuropsychopharmacology. <laughs> Try saying that ten times fast. Um, and in that, even though it did show improvement of depression, uh, there were some. Cognitive side effects and not, um, and mostly in the older population, especially older female population. That doesn't seem to have any bearing on whether it should be used in children, although it kind of begs the question is that for those cognitive side effects, especially in older? populations, which tend to have cognitive side effects or cognitive difficulties anyway, uh, are they so pronounced or so unusual um, in that demographic that um, the negatives outweigh the positives? And I'm not sure they do. There was a letter, letter to the editor type thing (laughs) that sort that took the pro the pro side for ECT in teens and children and it seems to be written from somebody who's kind of walked the walk evidently her son has autism and was uh, violent and self-harmed uh, until he started receiving ECT treatments and after that you know he's able to function Um, at school and take classes and go out the family outings and things of that nature and uh, it seems to have really helped this child in particular. She has a couple of good links about uh, pointing to studies that um, document that ECT causes growth of new neurons in the brain which seems like a good thing (laughs) to this layman um and pointing out that that uh no child has ever died from ect i'm not sure the same can be said for adults especially back in the dark ages right (laughs) when they were doing it well against what would be best practices now right so it's an interesting sort of discussion because you can definitely see where the lawmakers are coming from. Um, I'm sure that they think that they're doing the right thing, that that they're protecting children from basically what they believe is child abuse. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to unearth any um, any other stories of people who have personal experience with it other than this one um, mother who has a positive spin on it. Um, it'd be interesting if I could find some of the negative fam- family stories. So far, I haven't been able to find any. So for more so people who want a little bit of more information on this, or if you live in Philadelphia, um, the house bill, PA house bill is eighteen oh nine and. Um it looks like that's still pending. Um, you can go to well, you could probably just Google Bill Pennsylvania House Bill 1809 and you'll be able to get some information on that. And if there's anybody out there who has a personal story about ECT, I'd love to hear it um, especially you know if it if it has any bearing on this bill if it is in regards to autism or children um, I'd be really interested in hearing your story and speaking of stories so in lieu of a an interview today I'm going to be um, sharing O's story Um, O asked me not to share their name so I won't be um, it's a long one so that's why I'm doing it as a uh, as main story as the main part of the podcast as opposed to just the listener mail at the end and it is it's written in somewhat of a narrative style as well so um, it's not really a letter style Oh, writes 15 september 2016 it's horrible to resent your own children i resent them for keeping me alive It would be a lot easier to kill myself without the burden of ruining two young lives in the process. They're two boys, aged two and four at the time of writing. It already terrifies me that they will feel like this when they're older. Losing a father to suicide would be a cast-iron guarantee of a life of misery. So I stay, trapped, terrified. Today I wish I could kill myself, though. Don't know what hate means until you truly hate yourself. Sometimes I convince myself that my wife might understand. She has been there within the emergency room when I have summoned the energy to say, I don't think I can keep myself safe. She has been there when I have sobbed for three months straight, and she has cradled my head to her chest as I have been racked with tears, guilt, and shame. She has protected our son from seeing daddy at his worst. She has also been there at flying schools, bicycle shops, Apple stores, and innumerable high-end watch shops as I have spent thousands of pounds in hypomanic sprays. I've flown planes, cycled across countries, undertaken epic motorcycle journeys, moved from Europe to America as a successful young businessman, and traveled the world serving clients from Los Angeles to Japan. I suffer from bipolar disorder, and it's the most exhilarating creative force for success, and the thing I am absolutely certain will wear me down and kill me. 28th September, 2016. 13 days later. I genuinely wish I could kill myself last week, no hyperbole. I sat in the car in the garage for an inordinately long time, willing myself to turn the engine off and get out of the car to join my family in the house. I phoned my psychiatrist who put me straight into a therapy session. One never really knows how much in bipolar is outside influences or how much is the peaks and troughs still helped by our brain chemistry. Today, just 13 days later, I feel the most, quote, normal, I've felt, in almost a year, not overtly, on an up or a swing. It's the first time I've felt normal since starting on any drugs for depression or bipolar disorder. I really hope this is where I plateau. I'm terrified of reliving the past few months. 2nd December 2016. I flew overnight to London yesterday in order to see my UK-based doctors. It's crazy that this is cheaper than seeing them in the US. Side note, yes it is. April 2017. I've been through countless rapid cycles and medication adjustments since then, and now I have a comprehensive drug me- regimen. I'd love to say it was a straightforward process, but trial and error typified the process, as it does. I take a drug cocktail compromising, comprising mood stabilizers, antidepressants, and antipsychotics, complex B vitamins. In addition, I have to take metformin, a diabetic blood sugar stabilizing drug, to manage the weight gain and cravings alongside phentermine to help me lose 60 pounds I've gained in the last year. It has not been a smooth road to come to this point, and hopefully my writings that follow will provide some insight into my life, the life of a bipolar person, and insight into my own experiences and the manifestations of the disease. Diagnosis of a mental disorder is an inexact science, and it has taken 16 years for me to get to the point where I have a working diagnosis, but even now it is fluid. Last week, my current psychiatrist changed my diagnosis from high-functioning bipolar type 2 to bipolar type 1. Psychiatrists, pedocs through the internet community, disagree with each other. Countries, methodologies, disagree with each other. I have a diagnosis of bipolar 2 in the UK and bipolar 1 in the USA. Thankfully, as I split my time between both healthcare systems, the treatment is the same. The story of my diagnosis may be familiar to many or completely unknown. Experiences of diagnoses are as diverse as the sufferers of the disorder. In early 2016, I was in a deep, dark, perpetual depression. I couldn't summon the energy to get out of bed, and I was feeling tearful and melancholic almost perpetually. One weekend in particular stands out. On the Saturday, I had to go into London for a 9am suit-fitting appointment. I was in floods of tears before leaving the house. Convicted, I would not be able to resist throwing myself under one of the many fast trains passing through our small suburban station, but unwilling to scare my wife with the thought. Even now, we don't speak about my darkest thoughts. She knows I have them, but not the darkness or the regularity. I resisted joining the platform until I knew the train would stop and not thunder through invitingly. At Charing Cross Station, I hope I said that right, I was completely desynchronized by from my surroundings, almost a full out-of-body experience. Every footstep reverberated through my body, up into my brain, making it shake with electric shocks. I passed ducks on a frozen pond in St. St. James's Park and walked through a deserted Piccadilly Circus. The appointment itself passed pleasantly. The high-functioning part of my diagnosis means that outwardly I present as normal to all those but the closest to me. Throughout it all, I was obsessed with my death. I wished for an accident to kill me, to remove the guilt from the process. I don't remember the journey home. But I remember a few worried text messages from my my wife, not knowing how to respond to them. I don't recall if I ever did. One of the key defining symptoms for me has been memory holes, a complete gap. My wife started to point it out at the end of 2015, and it has persevered to this day. We had a birthday party for my youngest son's second birthday on Sunday, as is customary in our little family. I was making the cake my stress and anxiety levels were through the roof and with every little error i muttered and with every little error i muttered i muttered stupid under my breath with a rising intonation until i dropped the cake on the floor and burst into tears screaming insults at myself calling myself stupid is one of those signs my wife now looks out for as my self-esteem dips and my stress rises in tandem that evening i was inconsolable again Physically, I shrink into myself, shield my eyes with my hands, and suffer from restless legs bouncing up and down. When a crash is coming, these s- symptoms gradually return, and I rely on my wife to point them out before I notice them myself. When I do notice them, before she does, it is ideation and imagery from my own death of the first warnings that a storm is coming. It is always too late to steer the ship around the choppy, treacherous waters by that point. I know that life is about to come- become unbearable and that I will wish for death every day until it passes. On the Sunday of the birthday party, our closest friends gathered in our house for my youngest son's second birthday. Only two of the 16 people attending noticed something amiss, my wife's younger brother and my mother. I was completely drained by the end of the day, a house full of people holding it together until the point we got back our family privacy again, and I broke down again. That night, I experimented with ligature just to see what it felt like. I didn't like it. The blue woven belt cut into my throat uncomfortably, sealing off both the air to my lungs and the oxygenated blood to my brain until I became lightheaded. It didn't take long. Much like Winona Writers, Susanna Kaiser in Girl Interrupted, it took a long time for me to acknowledge this was a suicide attempt. I had a genuine, almost academic interest in knowing what it would feel like. I was reckless. I kn- it didn't. I know now that in order to succeed, one must buckle the belt. Thankfully, I didn't. My therapist asked me how many people would do that if they weren't suffering a serious mental breakdown. It took a couple of minutes to regain my composure. Then I went downstairs to rejoin my wife and the boys. There had been, they had been moments away from a totally different life. The next month is complete blank. Social media, airline p- points accounts, work emails, and so on tell me that I functioned, traveled, and generated business as usual, but my memory had shut down. Therapists tell me now that this is relatively common. I can tell you that it is incredibly destabilizing. I could not tell you a single detail from an actual memory. My next memory is from mid-February. It is also my next breakdown. We were preparing for a holiday to Malta with some great friends of ours, Kelly and John. I find that traveling anything other than alone is a very stressful experience. This includes my wife and children. Having taken anything from two to eight flights in a week for much of the past eight years, I have airports and airlines down to a fine art. The potential for other people to throw me off my game is a significant stressor for me. This may seem minor to most, but I've had to learn that we are all unique, and so are our stress points. I was stressed. I was worried about the extra time needed for security, worried that someone would forget a water bottle or a cosmetic bottle in the depths of their bag, and we'd have a secondary search. It would take hours. Heathrow's secondary searches are renowned for taking up to 45 minutes when within the regular traveler community just to get around to opening the bag. The thought of taking children on an airplane is a stressor, the thought of losing one in an airport is a stressor, misbehaving of the check-in desk, you name it, I probably find it stressful. I've recently been subjected to travel arrangements made by other people, and it keeps me awake at night knowing that I could be doing it more in line with how I like to travel. We all have our compulsions, mine are also triggers. When I'm at the tipping point of a crash into the abyss of depression, the compulsions rise within me. From this point, there follows a behavioral pattern that I recognize, but I'm incapable of breaking. Here is an example that led to my experimentation with a ligature. I had been increasingly anxious, and suffering the irritability, anger, and irrational lashing out that typifies my descents. I find the idea of suicide very controllable during these phases, It's like something I have absolute and comfortable control over. To this day, even at my worst, I take solace that I can turn it all off forever if I need to. I liken depressive crashes to a dam collapsing. My dam is capable of holding only so much back. For the last month, the high-functioning part of me has kept me ticking over and performing my day-to-day. I had nightly crying fits, but these weren't the dam cracking. That was just the water gently lapping over the top. The day we flew to Malta, the dam cracked and disintegrated. I spilled a cup of coffee—just a few drops—on our wipe-clean, doesn't matter kitchen floor and lost it. You stupid fucker! I yelled at myself. I grabbed an orange from the fruit bowl at arms' length and I hurled it with all my might against the cupboards, where it s- exploded all over. <sighs> where it exploded all over the kitchen in front of my terrified family. From there, I collapsed onto the bottom step of the staircase, unable to communicate or move. Completely melancholic. I must have stayed there five minutes. It may have been three hours. I have no idea. My wife must have cleaned up, continuing to protect me and the children from the realities of what was going on. I drove us to the airport in silence, and it was only upon meeting Kelly and John with their adorable two-year-old daughter that I was able to come out of myself again. After a week in Malta, we'd returned home for 14 hours before heading back to Heathrow for a family trip to Denver. I love Denver. It's so pretty. The trip was to introduce our boys to the new life. The friends, the surroundings, and lifestyle we could have expected for ourselves was to be laid bare, for that summer we would be emigrating. Sounds stressful, doesn't it? Driving back from the airport to our house, I started to cry inconsolably again. Amanda made me promise to get an appointment to see the GP when we returned from the U.S. I couldn't disagree or pull it off. I felt like such a burden, a third child she didn't need. I was certain she would be better off without me. Before long that day, I found myself back into my position at the bottom of the stairs, wondering why I couldn't move, desperately wanting to die, while Amanda packed and made the trip happen around me. The travel happened to me by this stage I was completely desynchronized from reality not absent but an observer rather than a participant as had happened in malta the distraction from my daily life rebuilt my dam i was hopelessly depressed yes but inwardly not outwardly i was functioning the day after we returned from america i made an urgent same day gp appointment i was told to come in at 3:30 and a locum i don't know what that is and a locum would see me I nervously waited for the red LED screen to show my name with its accompanying electronic howl to direct me to one of the appointment rooms. My leg bounced nervously. I had been to a doctor about depression before once, 15 or so years previously in my early 20s. The doctor at that time was Dr. Parker, and I remember him as a stern gentleman whilst I was growing up, for he had been my family GP for a long time. Over the course of about six months, I made all sorts of appointments to see him always canceling or making up another medical complaint before I could actually blurt out, I think I have depression. Such were and are the taboos surrounding a mental illness. In the end, I gave up trying to open up to him in person. I wrote him a letter and it was hard. I procrastinated over it for many hours before putting it in the postbox with horrifying finality. It was in the system. Dr. Parker would read that letter and think I was a total idiot for not not just telling him, for wasting his time and all those missed appointments, for all of those other appointments with spurious illnesses. He simply wrote back, I think you should come and see me. I spent the next three years on an antidepressant called sertraline. I think it saved my life at the time, but it also caused what I know now to be hypomanic symptoms for three years. Though these went completely unrecognized at the time, and were only part of my diagnosis much later. I drank daily, had sex often, with men and women, and went bankrupt. One standout incident involves a Colombian colleague who received a stand-up row from me. I'm British, we don't do that. That concluded with me calling him a dickhead in front of 50 or 60 people. He didn't deserve it. It was a simple disagreement that should have been handled with a simple conversation. But his Latin flair, coupled with my complete disinhibition, created quite the scene. Back to 2016, and a disinterested doctor asked me why. I was there, and with barely a glance as I came into the room, I was prepared this time. I had done it before, and I was in my mid-30s now. I'm suffering from depression again. Are you sure? What are your symptoms? He said, not even looking up. Inconsolable crying, frequent thoughts of suicide and anxiety. How long have you felt like this? She asked, glancing in my direction. Since early January, though with hindsight, my mood started to decline in October. With that, we were done, and I walked out of there with a prescription for a citalopram. A common SSRI, or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, I was also instructed to make an appointment in two weeks exactly to see the doctor again for a medication review. Things definitely changed at that point. As per my previous experiences of SSRIs, the side effects are often quite noticeable, not necessarily unpleasant, but you're aware there is a chemical change taking place in your awareness of the world. I returned to the GP surgery to see a different doctor, as he was the only one available exactly two weeks from my initial appointment. I can remember the next 20 minutes with absolute crystal clarity. It is perhaps my first solid memory of the year. I left the waiting room, turned and left and walked down the familiar musty smelling corridors of my childhood doctor's surgery. A smell that never fails to remind me of three decades of immunizations, ear infections, and referrals for physiotherapy after some back or knee injury. I knocked on the door to room four. A pleasantly mannered man introduced himself as Dr. Grover, greeted me, and invited me to sit down. He hadn't read my notes. What seems to be the problem? Well, um, this is a follow-up follow appointment after a colleague of yours prescribed me a citalopram two weeks ago. From that point on, I had his full attention. He looked me in the eye, listened, engaged, and made me feel worthy of his time. Since that day, he is the only GP I will discuss mental health issues with, and he has been my ardent supporter through emigration, titration, and near-hospitalization. He increased my dose of citalopram to a more effective dose for a 110kg man, but his best prescription was a referral to MIND, the mental health charity for CBT. Mind in the UK provides free counseling to people from all walks of life to ensure that no one has to face a mental health problem alone. The only problem was the waiting list, up to four weeks. This may not sound like a long time, but with an illness that I feared could claim my life at any point, four weeks seemed unattainable. I googled therapists providing CBT privately and found one locally that I could meet with after work at convenient times, and made appointment for the next day. Marilyn sees patients from a small, well-appointed, and comfortable room above her detached garage in one of the exclusive gated communities around London. My first impressions were unnecessarily judgmental, that she had probably taken this up as a hobby and for a bit of loose change to supplement her husband's income. Bored housewife seeks purpose. I'll never know if that's true, nor do I care, or even believe it to be relevant. Within minutes, I knew I'd made the right choice. Along with Dr. Grover, I will forever value her counsel and advice as responsible for saving my life during those dark days. We started with a test called the PHQ 9 to measure depression and another called the G87 for anxiety. The PHQ 9 score is used globally by healthcare systems to determine the presence and severity of depression. I scored a 24 on the PHQ 9 and a 16 on the G87. At least I wasn't wasting anyone's time. I found this strangely buoying. Together, Marilyn and I decided to avoid CBT, despite that having been the thing that led me to her. We focused instead on the roots of the issues and started to develop a self-care routine, making time for myself, meditating, and exercise. After a week or so, Mind got in touch, offered me an online CBT course as a the first point of entry. My experience of CBT in the past has been unfavorable, formulaic, and patronizing. Unbeknownst to me, the citalopram was starting to have a real effect and my hypomania was raging. I completed the eight week online course in a little over two hours. 10th May 2016. Marilyn suggested I speak to a psychiatrist to investigate the possibility that this was more than just depression. At the time, I didn't fully comprehend the weight of what she was saying. I decided to do this privately to enable it to fit into my work schedule. I was commuting to Switzerland three times a week and going to Japan twice a month at this stage, and I needed flexibility. I googled clinics in central London, paid my (sighs) £400. Wow, £400. And a few days later, found myself in a comfortable room sitting across from the man who had changed my life. In 90 minutes, he asked questions, probed, drew timelines, and took notes. You have bipolar disorder type 2. My world collapsed. What the fuck was bipolar disorder? Isn't that the thing serial killers have? I left the office and walked around for what seemed like a lifetime. Again, unanswered, worried texts from my wife built up. I never denied the diagnosis. It made sense. But on reflection, it took me a little over a year to come to terms with it. It was the worst year of my life. The immediate issue was to titrate off the SSRI so i was taking and immediately start taking a mood stabilizer depakote i titrated down over 4 days as instructed rather than the 2 months recommended by the product packaging it was this urgent that i got onto the depakote as early as possible i spiraled rapidly out of control into a mixed state so vicious that i completely lost touch with reality and lost control of myself i became convinced that i had to kill myself to end the roller coaster ride didn't take long before my wife had to take me to the emergency room. I was admitted for three days to come off the SSRI in a controlled environment and see how I adapted to the Depakote. Three days later, I left the hospital, and the next day, flew to Japan for 36 hours. I wished I had broken my leg to be able to cancel the trip, but after a client spent $8,000 on a trip, I had just one phone-in crazy. I can't imagine the terror I put my wife through. Sometimes I can't imagine why she puts up with it. Hypomania is a strange state that takes many forms in many different people. When called upon to describe it, I have often likened the experience to having four brains all at once, all running at top speed, all speaking over each other. My perceptions are heightened. I notice the world around me more clearly. The colors, the sounds, the smells, the trajectories of objects and events. In this respect, it's almost as if I can see the future. The outcomes of any decision, minor or major, are laid out before me in perfect focus. When my predictions prove to be right, the feelings of grandiosity increase. The downsides of this life lived on Fast Forward are an overwhelming irritability at everyone and everything. No one is ever clever enough or fast enough for me, or safe from my rages when I'm in the grips of this turbocharged state. I get angry quickly, but like a firework it's gone in seconds and forgotten. But, just like a firework, if it's badly directed, it can do some lasting damage. And when I emerge from the ensuing depression, always bef- ups before the downs, often months later, there are numerous bridges to repair in my personal life. Hypomania also makes me spendy. It's an itch that can only be scratched in a very specific way, prolific and excessive commerce. 2005, I declared bankruptcy after four years of what is blindingly obvious now, untreated and unstable bipolar. In the years before this bankruptcy, on a relatively low salary, I bought video game consoles, Playstations, the first Xbox, N64, all of them. Video games gave me horrific nausea and almost never made it out of the box, or if they did, then they didn't make it past the first 30 minutes of use. I would also purchase two identical SLR cameras with the excuse that one was always run black and white film while the other ran color, MacBooks, iPods, anything Apple bicycles, mini disc players, stereo systems. I also drink in a binary fashion, either all or nothing. And my most hypomanic, I would go out on a Friday night after work and not get home till Sunday. Without stopping for sleep, without stopping drinking. It's not unusual to spend over a 100 pounds on one single night out without buying drinks for anyone else. As I got older and more senior, the salaries increased, meaning my hypomanic sprees were no longer a financial threat which, ironically, is required as a diagnostic factor. Though they are no less prevalent, in one month, immediately after my first son was born, I purchased a motorcycle, iPad, camera, tickets to the Olympics, holidays, archery equipment, a MacBook Pro, flying lessons, and new iPhones. My wife was wrapped up in being a new mother and deserved a supportive husband. All I could do was take up new hobbies, spend money, and run around at 1,000 miles an hour. I'm told this period was followed by a deep depression of which I have no recollection the first month of. My brain refuses to acknowledge the events. That I spent a week inconsolable on the sofa, my wife nursing a newborn and worried that her husband would intentionally widow her. I've never actually asked her if she knew how bad things were at this point, but she's empathetic and intelligent. That month cost 8,000 pounds, but I still didn't see a doctor. The depression was blessedly short, maybe two or three months, and I emerged from it in the spring of 2012 as the sun was rising higher in the sky and flowers were emerging. Fast forward again to 2016 and the deepest depression I can remember since my early 20s. This time feels different. I am used to a level of melancholy in my life, and for the most part, my successful survival of the last 15 years that I lived with undiagnosed bipolar disorder pays testament to this. But this time is malevolent and intrusive. I see death, my death, everywhere. My silhouetted body hanging from a tree in a forest, blue-faced. My toe tagged at the morgue, pieces of me on a rail line. It's going to beat me this time. Despair is running through me as if it were my own blood, and I simply cannot see an end. Even if I know it will get better, can I bear to wait that long? Suicide is too often perceived as cowardly. It's not. It's fucking terrifying and feels like a compulsion. In April 2012, I took a trip that would eventually change my life. My company sent me on a very brief secondment to a partner company office in Denver, Colorado. It's possibly the most beautiful place on earth, a small, neat metropolis set against the splendor of the Rocky Mountain foothills as the backdrop. My American colleague took me out to a baseball game, got me drunk, and opened up with. My American colleague took me out to a baseball game, got me drunk, and opened up with. We've always been impressed with your work, and if you wanted to ever leave your current company and work in the USA, we'd make that work. Between us, we spent over four years and a lot of mostly their money making that work. My life has been an anxious one. I've previously touched on how anxiety affects me, especially when traveling. But it's always been a chicken or egg scenario. Does my anxiety cause symptoms, or is it a symptom itself? I still don't know the answer. I'm apt to be anxious about a number of things, with mental and physical fallout. I feel the cortisol course through me. At the same time, I become irritable, angry. Everything becomes a problem. In many ways, bipolar disorder completely characterizes me, controls me, and defines me. In others, it is a background feature. I have a strict drug regimen, require regular test patterns and exercise, and I can't drink. Or shouldn't. Either way, I've chosen not to. Am I successful because of the hypomania leading to risk-taking, or because bipolar can often lead to high achievement? Or am I simply lucky that the bipolar disorder has not held me back? Maybe I'm simply good at my job. Second-guessing every thought characterizes my bipolar. On On obsessions triggers an ideation. I'm scared about writing this section. This sort of discussion always causes ideation with me, which inevitably will lead to obsessive behavior focused on ending my life, but it's the elephant in the room. Actually, that's not right. It's the alligator in the river, drifting under the surface, ready to strike at the unprepared. I think I'm prepared. The first time I realized I may have a problem when I felt the blue woven M&S belt tighten around my neck. This may sound crazy. It is, of course, crazy. But at no point leading up to this did I consider anything that I was thinking to be any more than an academic interest into the process and research into the physical sensations of ligature. Even to my dubious therapist, I maintained that I hadn't been feeling suicidal. But I just wanted to know how it felt. It was unpleasant. This much should have been obvious to me before I tightened the belt. What was unexpected was the crushing sensation on my voice box. I wasn't prepared for that. I expected to feel choking, not pain. I can also pinpoint this episode in early 2015 as one of the earliest hindsight into my descent into the madness that had gripped me in the past. This didn't feel any different. The only difference was going to be the eventual diagnosis and everything thereafter. Many months later, the doctors decided this was an attempt on my life. An incomplete suicide was the cold, hard medical parlance they used. In a twisted way, I like that description. If I have to keep score, I'd rather keep that column higher than any other, much like the proverbial pilot needs an equal number of landings to takeoffs. On the days I came close to jumping in front of a speeding train at, at railway stations, in the mornings and evenings of my commute, my colleagues never noticed anything amiss. The beast reared its head again and again recently. The academic fascination I have with suicide, Unable to stop the internet searches, spills into obsession, and is the academic fascination I have with suicide. Unable to stop the internet searches, spills into depression, and is eventually dangerous during my mixed episodes, when compulsions and energy meet the pits of despair. I can do anything then. Since we've moved to the USA, we've had a garage just fitting one car, which I tend to monopolize as the person needing to be up and out the earliest in the mornings, On more than one occasion, I've backed the car in and sat there with the engine running, my hand on the key, wondering if it's the right time to gas myself. I clearly haven't yet. I can feel myself coming down today. Everything is taking on black and gray hues. The random songs thrown at me by Spotify are no longer amazing. My eyes feel nearer, distinct from the wild, wide eyes of mania. My work ceases to get done, and all I can think of is the crash I know is coming. These sudden plummets into the depths of despair terrify me each time I have a manic episode. They're as inevitable as the sun sets, though. Will I end up with a belt around my neck? Will I spend my days crying? Will I take it out on my family? Any one of these things would be bad enough, but they're small snapshots of my usual depths. I miss the manic highs. It's been a total voyage of discovery. With hindsight and knowledge, I have been always bipolar, and I know now I always will be. It is unlikely that I will ever stop taking medication for the disorder. My medication makes me tired a lot. My sleep averages have gone from seven to nine hours a night since I started the medication. I often miss the charisma, magnetism, and spontaneity that the hypomania gave me when it's gone, and I love it when it comes back but I still worry that the disorder will kill me. Hmm. Thank you over for that story. It's um, It's very visceral, very touching. And I hope that you're, that you're feeling somewhat better than it seems like you were on the last page of your story. And I just want you to know that if you need to, you can email me. That goes for anybody, of course. Anybody's feel feel free to email me at any time i'll only use your stories if you tell me that it's okay if you email me um, in crisis or looking for help then i'm not going to share that story unless you ask me to if anybody would like to follow os lead and send a listener story you can send it to that b word at stonefruitmedia.net or you can send it to that b word pod at gmail.com I'm kind of migrating away from the Gmail, but it still works and I'll forward to the new address. You can find me on Twitter at that word one and find me on Facebook. I have a group called That B Word Podcast. You can search for that. Find my website at net. Um, that's kind of where I'm migrating everything to. So if you followed me on Podbean, Please uh, update your links and uh, follow me now over at stonefruitmedia.net or on iTunes or uh, Stitcher, Google Play, any of the major outlets. And I'm still looking for listener submissions. Um, you can email me or hit me up at any of those outlets and we can get together and work something out. I also have a new blog up at that thatbword.stonefruitmedia.net and you can see a link to the blog there. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast. I think that's it. Thank you guys so much for listening. Bye.